It might possibly be one of the most familiar stories in the Bible. But as we begin this morning, I'd like to remind you of a story of warfare, of champions, of armor, and of weaponry. The children of Israel were at war with the Philistines, and there was a man back home who had most of his sons serving on the front line of the battle. All of his sons, in fact, except one, his youngest, a shepherd by the name of David. Wanting to find out about the welfare of his boys and the the war in general, David's father, Jesse, sends him on up to the line to check on things and actually to take some food to the boys and the boys' leaders. When he gets there, he finds the two armies at an impasse. Each day in the midst of those battles, in the midst of that war, the Philistine army would he'd send out this, their champion, a Goliath by the name of a giant by the name of Goliath, I should say. I, I heard myself say that and I thought, that doesn't sound right. Each day, Goliath would come out and challenge the Israelites to send out a champion of their own for a winner-takes-all fight. Goliath wins the battle and the children of Israel would serve them indefinitely. However, if the Israeli champion would send out a champion and he beat Goliath, then the Philistines would be the servants of Israel. Each day the challenge is made, and each day all of the men of Israel hear the challenge, and then they run away scared to death. This is the impasse that David finds when he goes to check on his brothers and take food for not only them, but for their leaders, right? Confident that God would honor his own name and that he would deliver him from the hand of the Philistine just like he had the paw of the lion and the bear. David was taken to Saul and said, I'll fight him. And as you can imagine, King Saul was willing to send him out. But Saul was going to follow conventional wisdom before David goes out there, right? So he gives him his armor. Here's a big old heavy helmet. Put this on. Here's, here's armor that's going to weigh you down. And here's a sword that you're not big enough to carry. But this is what you should go out to because this is what conventional wisdom says is the way that you attack the captain of the other army, the champion of the other army. You know the story? David can't walk in the armor he's worn and he, he's never practiced with this warfare armor and the, the weaponry that he's been given. So he takes it off and heads out to face the giant. Having stopped and picked up five stones, he takes the sling and approaches facing that giant. David charged the giant, Goliath, in the name of the Lord, swinging his sling and letting go a stone that lands right in the forehead of the giant, and he falls to his face, dead. By way of conventional wisdom, Saul was going to dress him up in his stuff. But David did not fight Goliath according to conventional wisdom. David fought Goliath confident and fully secure in his faith in God. Faith that God would deliver him and faith that God would give him the victory. Think with me. 
to Ephesians chapter 6, our passage. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesians these verses, and we've covered them already, so allow me just to kind of allude to them. He told them, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then Paul writes this, for we, and he's talking about himself, and he's talking about the believers in Ephesus, and by God's grace and the power of the Spirit, he's talking about every Christian who's sitting within the hearing of my voice and reading this passage all over the world. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Put a pause in it right there. Like David fighting against his foe, God would have us wrestle, not according to conventional wisdom, but with weaponry, armor that is suited to defeat our foe. Last week we looked at the first three pieces of that armor that God has issued to every believer. We looked at the belt of truth. We looked at the breastplate of righteousness. And we, we considered the readiness that comes from having strapped on the shoes of the gospel of feet upon our feet. Boots that would have had spikes in it, enabling feet to be securely stuck into the ground so as not to slip, and that they might be able to stand firm. This morning we'll look at two additional pieces. This is unconventional weaponry. The world would have advice for us to follow. God gives us armor to wear, and it is Spirit-empowered. So if I could invite you to glance down at your copy of God's Word. I'm reading from Ephesians chapter 6, now starting with verse 13 to review where we've been, and then to continue on through verse 17, which contains all three of the next pieces of armor, two of which we're going to consider this morning. Verse 13, this is God's Word. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. And then he explains what the sword of the Spirit is. We'll look at this next week. Which is the Word of God. Then he goes into the last bit of armory, armor, I should say, and that is prayer. We'll consider that when we do the sword of the Spirit. This is the Word of the Lord. May He add richly to our reading and now our study of this Word. Let's look at these one at a time. Like I said, we're going to look at two of these. The first we're going to consider is the shield of faith. 
the shield of faith in all circumstances, he says. Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Before I begin to talk about this shield of faith, I want to highlight something. So none of us run the risk of skimming over it and missing it. Notice what Paul does not say at the end of verse 16. Paul does not say, if the evil one launches flaming darts. We've tried, I've tried to reiterate that all throughout this passage, that we are in a spiritual wrestling match, that we have an enemy. He's strong. Our Savior is stronger. But I don't want you to think that we are immune to spiritual warfare. It is happening all around us. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say if. But our text does assure us that flaming darts are constantly being hurled toward the soldier. Constantly being hurled to the follower of Christ and the disciple maker. You want to put this in the context of Ephesians chapter 6 and the latter part of 5? You could say they're constantly being hurled up against husbands and wives, children and parents, bosses and employees. Chapter 4, church members. The desired result of these flaming darts is to disrupt a Christian's peace from God. It's designed to disrupt a a believer's confidence in in an ability to trust God and in an ability to trust His precious promises. The ESV translates the warfare or the armory of our enemy um, with the word darts, right? The Greek word is bellows. And ESV uses the word darts. Could have just as easily used the word arrows or javelin. Think back again to David and Goliath, right? David and Goliath have that standoff before they approach each other or before actually David runs toward his enemy. And David has some words to say to Goliath. He says, you come with me You come at me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord. The point that I'm trying to make here is that you need not get caught up on the word darts, but the fact that these are are vicious pieces of weaponry that are meant to stab, connect, and issue devastating effects into the uh, person at war. So as to make the impact... Even more devastating in our passage, Ephesians chapter 6, on the physical battlefront, especially that uh, Paul would have been knowledgeable of, maybe even witness to, darts or arrows would have been covered and wrapped in pitch, or in actually wraps of cloth, and then submerged into pitch, soaked in pitch, and before they were launched, they would be lit on fire. Right? So this wasn't just a, an act of intimidating the enemy, but consider when that dart lands into its desired target, or even near it, it would explode somewhat. It's not a bomb, but it would, it would splatter the contents of that wrap and that pitch and that fire, and the effect of the 
pain levied and the shot fired would not just be limited to the person, but to all those who were standing nearby. And Paul doesn't want us to miss this. These are flaming darts. They're not only intended for one person, but for those who are around. So Paul's alluding to this destructive weapon that's used on a battlefield, but his desire is that we would see the figurative language, this flaming dart, and apply that to the the serious warning against satanic temptations to sin against God. And that's what Paul is getting to. That's what he's talking about in this this wrestling match that we are up against, um, that, that Satan is... Now, sin... Sin resides in our heart, right? The temptations come from deep within our hearts and how we respond to those things are are a matter of our sanctification and our growth in Christ. However, you need to know that as a believer in this world, the enemy is in direct opposition to the things of God and His people. And he wants to disrupt and distract as many as possible along with his um, evil... Um, demons that work alongside him, and his goal is to distract and lead you to sin. John MacArthur puts it this way. He says, Satan continually bombards God's children with temptations to immorality, to hatred, to envy, to anger, to covetousness, to pride, to doubt, to fear, despair, distrust, and every other sin. The flaming darts of the evil one, they may come at you in the form of a false accusations. They may come at you in the form of overwhelming doubts. They may come at you in the form of kind of kindling your, the fuel that, that fuels up your spiritual pride. It may come at you at a paralyzing fear. Any amount of lust. Dishonoring anger. But they will always have a common theme. And that common theme that is lacing the fiery darts of the enemy is deception and dishonesty. In a word, lies. Paul refers to that deceiver, that our enemy in this verse, as the evil one. One commentator defines that evil one as the pernicious one. And I actually like this. It, 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 it lets me know that my enemy is not sitting on idle hoping that I mess up. He is actively seeking to disrupt and destroy Jesus had a name for him. Jesus referred to this evil one as a murderer that does not stand in the truth, John 8, 44, because there is not truth in him. It's little wonder then that Satan's first attack that we have record of in the Scriptures was a, this well-known attack was a lie that he fired toward Adam and Eve, right? That lie was dressed up in some half-truths, like most, in, if not all, of his lies are. But it was designed to cause our first parents 
to question all that they knew about God and to question if, if they could even have confidence in the words that God Himself had said. Approaching with these words, did God really say? Well, what then can ward off or what can extinguish the flaming darts? That's this piece of armor that we're considering this morning. And what can extinguish those flaming darts is the shield of faith. The shield of faith refers to, it, you know, it's not a um, Captain America kind of shield that's round that would only cover what is kind of used to kind of parry off shots from something coming up or in Captain America's thing, ward off everything, right? Bullets and everything. That's, that's kind of uh, crazy to think of. But this shield is not a small round shield that you may have seen in pictures of older Roman soldiers, or even older than that, Spartan soldiers, right? But it refers to a large door-shaped shield that a soldier could protect his entire body behind. It's not six feet tall, but it is such that probably went from knee to face, and, and if need be, he could find his protection right behind it and cover most of his being behind it. It was typically made of a couple, a few pieces of, of wood that was... Um, banded together or laminated together and then coated with multiple layers of leather. Nice ones would even have a, 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 a boss right there in the center of it, not only for um, decoration, but also the inside of that would then create this handle that the soldier could hold on to. Just before battle, they would take that shield, those large shields, and soak them down into water so as to aid in the process of extinguishing fiery darts. Because fiery darts are going to come, right? But the wettened shield in the soldier's arsenal would absorb those fiery darts, and instead of splattering to affect others around, the, the plan and the hope was that it would be extinguished in the midst of that battle. The shield that you and I are issued, however, and I want you to hear this, Obviously, it's not made of leather or wood, right? Neither is it fashioned by hands. But its makeup is faith. And faith's object is to be God as revealed in the Word. Faith is only as strong as the object that one's faith is put into. And the faith of the believer must be, as it was for David on that battlefield, God as revealed in His Word. I like to define faith this way. Faith is believing that what God's Word says is true regardless of our circumstances. So instead of letting our emotions and circumstances define what's true, the believer recognizes that God's Word is true regardless of our circumstances. So faith is not just belief, but it's belief plus trust, and it's corroborated in the life of a believer by obedience. It's resting in the person of God. And it's resting in His Word to us. You might write down a few references um, that I'm about to share with you 
they would not be bad things to set to memory as you are growing this shield of faith in which you've been issued and that you carry. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5 and 6. Proverbs 30, verse 5 and 6 says this, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to His words, lest He rebuke you and you be found a liar. Proverbs 30, verse 5 and 6. The psalmist writes in Psalm chapter 3, verse 3, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Then two chapters over, the psalmist writes in Psalm chapter 5, verse 12, For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. The shield of the Lord the shield of faith. It's not, God, it's not God's design that it be limited to a round thing one holds in their hands, but something that serves as a shield for the person because God is our refuge and strength. In Romans chapter 10, Paul writes these words and says, Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. Some practical application here for you, growing Christians. We grow in our faith. In some senses, figuratively, the size of our shield grows, right? I'm just saying figuratively. But we grow in our faith as we take in God's Word and we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. I won't develop this a ton here because we'll talk about the sword of the Spirit next week, which is both offensive and defensive. But I just want to stand here in front of you and, and plead for you to take seriously the opportunity and the God-given grace to fill your mind with Scripture, to take in His Word so that you might not sin against God. As we fill our minds with God's Word, sin cannot dominate us. And by God's grace, the flaming darts of the evil one will be expended will be extinguished. I'm halfway through my time, halfway through the first thing. I spent most of my majority of the time talking about this shield of faith and I feel like we could talk about the shield of faith and its practical applications for days. I cannot underestimate, I can't under, I want to say undersell and I'm not selling anything, but I can't over communicate the importance of you prioritizing time in the Word. And I cannot overstate the, the correlation between the shield of faith in which you hide yourself behind God and His, and His Word and your willingness to commit time to reading His Word. Thy Word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin. Against thee. We've looked at the shield of faith, albeit briefly. Now glance down at the first part of verse 17, the opening words of verse 17 for our second and final thing we're going to look at this morning. And that is the helmet of salvation. I, can, I, I admit to you that for years of my early life, this was a rather confusing thing to me. Um, 
But Lord willing, it will not be confusing to you after we talk about it for a moment. And maybe by this clarifying statement. Listen, remember, who is Ephesians written to? It's written to the church in Ephesus. Those who have been adopted, those who have been redeemed, those who have been saved through faith by grace. The only ones who can take up any piece of the spiritual armor are those who are already saved. The helmet of salvation, just because it has that word, it should not trip you up and make you think something that it's not saying. The helmet of salvation is not meant to communicate that it is necessary to be saved over and over again. But it's designed as what you put on so as to remind you, to remind me, to remind the church that my salvation is an eternal possession from which I cannot be separated. Romans chapter 8, verse 35 and 37 says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, No, Paul writes in verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Who was that? That was Jesus who made possible and secured the salvation of all who would trust by faith in Him. But the pernicious liar wants to plant seeds of doubt so you'll question this and that you will not endure and that you will not walk as a conqueror in Christ. However, this is good news. God provided you with a piece of armor that is meant to protect your mind from the double-edged sword of the enemy. And the double-edged sword of the enemy, two sides, it's namely accusations, and deceptions. Count on it. And it is meant to be swift blows up against your confidence in God as it was Adam and Eve, as it has been all of us who have walked any miles along this journey with Christ. Think Pilgrim in the Pilgrim's Progress. He was confronted with this all throughout his journey to the celestial city. You're not suited up for your day until you don the helmet of salvation. Before I move on toward conclusion, I just want to spend a moment here and and remind you of the three tenses of your glorious salvation. I hope that's not a leap for you from this text, but I just... I want to kind of lay down here for a moment and talk about the three tenses of your salvation. I hope it's encouraging for you. Back in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, when we studied that, we learned, Paul wrote, for by grace you have been saved through faith. The words, you have been saved, come to us in the form of a perfect passive participle, which means... It's important, but it means this. Paul is describing a past event saved, a past event that has ongoing, continual effect. Okay? 
In other words, we could say it this way. I have been saved. For me, it was 1977. I walked down 16 steps from the upstairs of my parents' house down into the living room where my dad was sitting on the couch. And we had that one additional conversation that added to the many. And I confessed my sins before the Lord. And He taught me and pushed me and encouraged me into praying a prayer to Jesus to become saved right there in the living room. But that was a point in time. You have point in time. It's not important that you... I'm not an advocate of saying if you don't know that minute and that hour and that date, it's not real. So I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, for me, pretty vivid for me in that living room at that time. However, it was the point in which I had been saved. Past tense. However, I am also being saved. I'll explain that in just a second. And by God's grace and praise the Lord... I will be saved. Okay? Theologians have provided words for us, handles to help us understand these tenses of salvation. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. Allow me, if you will, to just take a second on each of those words. Justification. I have been saved. That moment in time when by God's grace, one is saved, having been rescued from death to life, and having been brought out of from blindness to light. How does this happen? Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then he continues to write in that same passage, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now at that moment of salvation, God declares the believer righteous. That is the core meaning of the word justification, justified. So God in that moment declares the believer, righteous. And he declares him not guilty. Not based on anything he's brought to the table or done, but on the basis of Jesus Christ, the righteous, who took on that person's punishment, took on that person's guilt and shame. And as a result of his new birth, God imputed, we talked about this last week, He imputed the righteousness of Jesus to him or her in exchange. A lot of folks will actually describe this as the great exchange. And that's what the gospel is. I, am, I have been saved. Justification. Second part in this tense timeline is sanctification. Fortunately, the whole book of Ephesians has been describing how God works in us through the Spirit to sanctify us, to grow us up. If justification means our declared righteousness before God, then sanctification means our gradual, growing righteousness in Christ. But the timeline doesn't stop there. So you and I are in a process of being sanctified, growing up in Jesus. But we look forward to a day coming where the growing will be complete 
and sickness will be no more, and every tear will be wiped from our eyes, and we're in glory because of Jesus and with Jesus. Glorification, then, is all about future hope. It's rooted in a living hope. Peter chapter one, 1 Peter chapter 1 talks about the living hope, and that living hope that we as believers have is Jesus. Like I said last week, one day believers will trade their battle armor for robes of glory. Now in a previous letter that Paul had written, in fact, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 8, Paul elaborates on our helmet of salvation. And he includes the glorious hope that believers are looking forward to in 1 Thessalonians, which he doesn't do in Ephesians. It doesn't mean that it's no longer true. It just means that, and because Scripture can't contradict itself, we're going to look to Thessalonians for a little bit more elaboration on what we can learn about this helmet of salvation. In short, let me just share. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8 says this. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for the helmet, the hope of salvation. The final aspect in the tense of this golden chain of redemption that I'm talking about, our justification, sanctification, and glorification. The final aspect of salvation in the believer's real strength, his real confidence, is enabled because without hope in a future promise of salvation, we cannot confidently walk securely in the present. You hear what I'm saying? Apart from the hope of of salvation, apart from the hope of there's a different day coming. There's there's Jesus who is going to come back and claim his bride. And one day we're going to see him and we're going to be like him. And because we have that hope of the future glory, we can stand securely in the present. Because in the present, our shield of faith has fiery darts that are aiming and firing right at it. In the present, We're interacting with believers who give us more and more and more evidence that this world is broken. In the present, we live amongst a people who aren't saved yet. In the present, we're in a wrestling match against sin. But there is coming a future glory. I've been saved. I'm being saved. Still a work in progress. My dad used to sing a song, He's Still Working on Me. To make me the man I ought to be. Took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, the sun and the moon and Jupiter and Mars. But his song would continue to say, and he's still working on me. Thanks be to God that our future glorification will be better than we can hope or imagine. And we don't look toward the future so as to blur out the present. But we live in the present with an eye toward the future. And that hope gives confidence here. Not in our ability to stand on our own, 
but in Christ in the armor that He provides. I don't want you to miss that. John wrote in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we will be like Him. We shall see Him because we shall see Him face just as He is. Believer, if you're a Christian in this room, can I just ask you, do you have this hope? Are you walking in this hope? Do you need to ask the Lord to to give you a glimpse of future hope, glory, and put this helmet of salvation on that reminds you of who you are in Christ? This is why the first chapter of Ephesians does exactly what it does. This is why the second chapter of Ephesians begins with, who you were apart from Christ and what the gospel provided in order for you to be seated in the heavenlies. This is why all of Ephesians has built to this very thing. So you'll be reminded of the gospel. And so you'll be reminded that the gospel is not limited to your initial new birth salvation, but involves the process He's walking in you right now to forgive you when you sin and confess your sin before Him because He is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness and to be preparing you now for a bride that He will return to. And to that we say, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, but until then, help me to stand in Your armor. If you're in this room and you're not a Christ follower, you've heard about Jesus, but you've not confessed your sin before Him, You've not received that great exchange. You've not prayed and said, Lord, I'm a sinner. I believe that you are God. I believe that your son Jesus died for my sins and that by the power of God, you raised Jesus from the dead. And I believe that in my heart and I'm confessing it with my mouth that I am a sinner in need of a savior. You can do that this morning. You can ask the Lord to save you this moment. And this moment can be that moment for you. That moment which you look back to and say, I was saved. I have been saved. And you can start that process of walking with Christ in newness of life right now. And I invite you to consider and do that. I want to talk to you about this shield for one more moment in closing. And I do so as an encouragement to us as a church us as a unified body. Also spoken of deeply in Ephesians, right? The unity of of, um, the Spirit that He produces and we preserve. In biology, the word phalanx is the singular form of the word phalanges. You're welcome. Some of you in biology class are going, I've heard that word. Not a clue what he's talking about. And some of you who are in the medical practice, I won't mention names, but his initials are Bill Horton, are saying, stick to the Bible, my man. You're getting this all wrong. Phalanges. These things. One of them's a phalanx. The big old tall shield that one would hide behind in the days of the Spartans. 
It kind of changed when the Roman legion came on. But that Spartan soldier would hide behind his shield. And it became a part of battle tactic where the phalanx, not the finger, but the shield would be linked together side by side with the hopes of making an impenetrable wall. And sometimes that wall would be linked for a mile or two. And that battle formation would be forward marching. And their spears, their, their javelins would poke through and archers would be behind them. But what would link them together in this, with hopes, this impenetrable wall was the linking together of all of their individual shields. I'm just mindful of how much I need you. There are occasions when I'm blind to my sin and and I'm oblivious to my need to raise up a shield so that the fiery darts of the enemy can be extinguished in it. I need brothers and sisters who are linking a shield right beside mine. Not standing in our victory, but standing in His victory. So that our shields together can be linked as an affront of defense against the enemy's fiery darts. And that we would love each other enough to not help carry someone's shield, but help someone remind them of the shield that they have. Hold that up. Soak it in water of the Word so that it can extinguish darts. Because I'm not always on my game. More than likely, you're not always on your game, right? But God has blessed us to be in this room. Not just a room, but in this body. So that these can be these tightly held together by God's grace for the good of this body and the good of individuals as we are being saved looking forward to the day when we will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are so good to us. We declare that You are true. Your Word is true. Your Son even prayed that You would sanctify us in the truth. So we recognize that there are fiery darts that are flaming at us. And sometimes, Lord, in our flesh, we launch fiery darts at each other. Oh Lord, protect us from that being the fruit of our lives. But specifically also, would you protect us from laying down our shield and being hit and led into sin? Lord, thank you that even in those moments for the believer who confesses their sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, I thank you for this body of Christ who takes sin seriously. Would you continue to move in our hearts that we might run away from sin and run toward the righteousness that is ours in Jesus. And may we take seriously the opportunity that you've given us to hide your word in our hearts as individuals and as a corporate body to remain committed to your word being our standard. So Lord, move in our hearts if if that has become slack in our individual lives. And cause Your Word to be tasty for us. May it satisfy our hunger 
May it satisfy our thirst. And may you rescue us with it. Jesus, thank you for your great care and shepherding. And I pray for my friends in this room who, like all of us, are in that battle against an enemy that is pernicious, speaking lies into their minds and into their hearts. Would you help them take those thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ because you are firmly cementing their beings in your word? Help them hide behind the shield of faith that you've provided. And help them securely fasten the helmet of salvation being reminded of who they are in Jesus so that they might stand firm in this battle until you call us as your bride home. For this is our prayer. We trust you. We trust your word to do that work. But Lord, I've addressed folks who may not know you as Lord and Savior. And would you continue, Lord, to do a work in them And if you're leading them to repent of their sin and to become a follower of Jesus, to be saved in this moment of time, would you lead them through that prayer of calling out to you to confess their sins and to forgive them of all unrighteousness and to exchange their past life with your righteousness, Jesus. Instantaneously save them, we pray. Take all that was old and may it pass away and may everything else Moving forward, be new in them. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.